My name is Sarah, and I'm a loyal listener of the When Dating Hurts podcast. Every single episode, I learn something new, and I'm amazed time and time again by the strength of each survivor. The When Dating Hurts podcast has so much great advice. It really highlights several of the early warning signs so that you can get out before it's too late. Even if you're a domestic abuse survivor like myself, it's still a good idea to keep yourself educated about the red flags of an abusive person. I have gladly recommended the When Dating Hurts podcast to all of my girlfriends. The When Dating Hurts podcast continues to grow in popularity. The more who listen, the more who will know the realities of dating and domestic violence. In the meantime, the When Dating Hurts book, in paperback, ebook, and audiobook, is being purchased and read by concerned parents, teachers, victims and survivors, and of course, those who are currently dating. Education leads to empowerment. That way, if a potential abuser is targeting you or someone you care about, you will know how to detect it and how to break free and stay safe. Up next, another survivor story to illustrate how an innocent person can become manipulated and trapped in abusive relationships. Part two of Sabrina's story starts as her freshman year ends. She prepares to go with Jake to Paris, a seemingly wonderful step in their relationship and her chance to see more of the world. But no matter how positive this sounds, there is little positive to what you will be hearing next. Overall, France was great for the experience and the travel, not so great in the relationship department. Then we come home in the spring. Jake decides to cut off his family. He had had a very distant relationship with them up till this point. They had a hand in helping him get to France So I think after that, he had used up what resources he wanted, and he was done. But he did have a job over there, didn't he, when he was there? He did, yeah. He had a job there. What happened to the job? He just quits the job, now go back to the States? It was like a job through the school, so it was was meant to be just a short amount of time. So once he finished that, then we came back, and neither one of us had a job at that point. This is where the real challenge starts. We get back to the farm and we're both staying there trying to get our bearings, you know, decide where we're going to go and what we're going to do with ourselves, you know, for a job. Now that must've been kind of interesting because now he's at the farm, the place he's been making fun of. Yeah. And here's mom and here's your brother, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. How does that feel? It was wildly uncomfortable. Pretty tense, right? Yeah, it was super tense. My family obviously didn't like him at this point. I'm very committal. I, I feel like it's part, I don't know if it's my raising or a personality trait, but I, especially in relationships, have had multiple long-term relationships. So I, at this point, was very committed to this relationship. You know, we had had experiences together. He had met my father. There was a lot of things that tied me to this relationship. And he had been working on me in France, you know, this whole time he had been 
slowly starting to break down my self-esteem and it was absolutely working. You're feeling reliance upon him, therefore starting to think you yourself are a bit shaky. Yeah, I totally bought it. So yeah, we get back to the farm and things are horribly uncomfortable. He is just blatantly rude to my family and I am so ashamed yet committed to this relationship that obviously my priorities were just super mixed up and uh, convoluted, but we have a big blow up with my family. He pulls me outside and basically says, there's no way that you're going to go anywhere. You're going to do anything. Just, just talking down to me a lot about if I were to stay in relationship with my own family saying that you're going to go nowhere, you're going to be nothing. Also, just generally speaking down on what we did, you know, the farm, all this. So he says, you need to go cut things off with them like I did with my family. And to say that at this point in the story, I feel like I'm not providing enough understanding of the slow breakdown of my self-worth of who I was at this point was really starting to crumble. Uh, And so he had an in there, you know. So I had kind of been brainwashed this point where I went with it. I thought, I honestly don't have a good way to justify what I was thinking at that point. But I did it. I went in and basically told my mom and brother that I was going to move away and that that was going to be, that was going to be that. That is the thing that I have the most responsibility for and the most uh, guilt in this whole scenario is in those moments of mourning my father, I abandoned my family and just kind of kicked them aside when, you know, they really needed me and I needed them. But I was, I was so overwhelmed with grief and confused about who I was and what I was worth and um, just generally on shaky ground that I, I fell into this trap and I think that that's an important point that I was not a person that you'd look at and think I could be abused. I was relatively outgoing and confident and did really well in school. I was on a really good path. And then something like my father passing really shook me and my foundations and let this guy in for this all to happen. So I cut things off with my family. It was a it was a terrible time, horrible, scary time. Um, so then we moved back to the city where we had gone to college. While we were there, we started, and I see we loosely, mostly I started working, doing like grocery delivery. He was very insistent that we needed to do something that we were going to be able to be together and do at the same time. So this was something that could achieve that. Looking back, that is just so classic, you know, wanting to have control over me even while I'm working. So we started doing that. I would sign up and do it and he would ride along um, for a while, for maybe a couple weeks. And you're making money, but he's not making anything. He's not making anything. He's not. He's watching you make money, basically. Yes. Yeah, that's convenient. Right. Is he also taking over your financial life? Oh yeah. This was really the beginning of that when we moved back to the 
um, the city where I went to college. He was with me working for a couple weeks. After that, he um, just stopped. He would just stay home. He was, I haven't mentioned this up to this point, but he was very interested in spirituality, as was I. And that played a huge role in the story and the ways that he justified his actions to me. He was convinced that is kind of revolving around, I don't know if you've seen the movie The Secret. I think there's a lot of good good that comes from, you know, positive mindset and all that, but there's also a huge danger and a, a huge um, way to justify abuse and, and wrong behavior with saying, you know, you need to just have a positive mindset and you'll attract money. I remember there was a book and then the movie. Right? Yes. So he was... Yeah, yeah. There were a lot of people fell for that book. Mm-hmm. That was his big thing, that he was just going to stay home and meditate and attract money for us that way. Oh. That devolved into me supporting us and that lifestyle of his. So I uh, was working at one point three jobs, one of which was delivering services, of which I did three different delivery services, plus two other regular jobs. How many hours a week do you think that added up to for you working? As many as possible, probably 85 or more. I mean, it was... Seven days a week? Oh, yeah. It had to be. I didn't want to be at the apartment. Uh, eventually, I would rather be working on my own. I was working like a dog, and we were still... We, were, we came back into poverty, essentially. He decided that we needed this certain level of nice apartment, So he was making all of these terrible financial decisions for us where we couldn't afford this apartment, especially with just one person working, but we had to have it. He deserved this lifestyle, this level of, of comfort. He was entitled to that level of, of a place to call home. Right. Yes. So at this point, we're basically hungry. I am working so much, but between all of the bills, paying all of the bills myself and supporting his, I'm using air quotes, spiritual things that he needed. So he required about a bundle of sage a day. And that's not cheap. <laughs> Let me tell you how much money I have thrown away on that. What does a bundle of sage go for? I think I paid like $5 a bundle and he needed one a day. Is that about a handful? Yeah, it's like a bundle of... I don't know, maybe five inches long and an inch wide. Like a miniature brick of it? Yeah. Is that what that is? Yeah, basically. You just, you burn it and there's spiritual benefits. I don't mean to hate on that, but to me, it's kind of a, smelling it is definitely a trigger. So yeah, I was upkeeping his lifestyle and courses he wanted to take. You know, he had total control over the finances. He didn't literally... He didn't have literal access to my bank account or anything, but he had total control over me. Therefore, he might as well have had my debit card. He's telling you what checks to write. Right, exactly. So we are really struggling just to have money to eat at this point because to him, those basic things like food and water were not something that he had to worry about. He believed that by 
meditating, being the spiritual person, he was just going to bring those things to himself. When in reality, that looked like me busting my butt all day long, every day, just trying to put food on the table. I had never experienced anything like this. You know, I grew up middle class. I had never been hungry or really wanted um, in my life. But at this point, I was rapidly losing weight. I, I went from probably 200 pounds to 120 pounds. And I am 6'2", so 120 pounds looks not great on me. It was very thin. I'm losing weight. He is too. I remember times where I eventually got this job at this restaurant. And as soon as I got my paycheck, it was all gone with expenses, bills. I would have maybe a few dollars left in my bank account. And so at this restaurant, it was counter service and we would get a few dollars tips at the end of each day. I would take, sometimes it was a dollar, sometimes it was three. I would take this money to the grocery store and that's what I had to buy food for dinner with. You know, I got really creative. (laughs) I really do think that it benefited my character and a lot to struggle financially. It gave me a lot of compassion for others and that struggle, but Also, it made me more resourceful in a lot of ways. You know, I remember I couldn't afford paper towels. I would focus on finding ways to be more sustainable, you know, going to a thrift store and buying towels to clean with, trying to think about how I was spending the little money I did have control over. But another challenging thing in regards to poverty is he had decided we needed to go vegan. This was for spiritual benefits because he believed it was negative to put using air quotes again, death into your body, which the death of an animal that was challenging for me coming from a cattle farm. But I do relate a lot to the level of consciousness surrounding food that the veganism movement speaks to also the compassion for animals. There's a lot of aspects of it that I can get on board with. But he was like, we're doing this now. Stopped eating all meat, cheese, you know, all of that. So, and that kind of was a struggle for me in not knowing how to cook that way and having $1 to make dinner with at the grocery store was very, very challenging. Um, And it was a really good way for him to continue to alienate me from my family and my family generations back forever in his mind, they had been causing harm and suffering. And he used veganism as a justification in cutting off my family. So I remember one time I had cut my mom off, but she always tried every few months. She would reach out She would send me something. One time she sent me, because I had told her once when we spoke that I was really losing a lot of weight and, you know, I wasn't affording food very well. So she sent me this huge box of mac and cheese, lots of containers inside. I was so hungry. I can't even describe the level of discomfort it felt to be working so much and to be hungry all the time. Jake decided that we will not eat this mac and cheese. It's not vegan. Yes. It has cheese and it's horrible for your body and yada, yada, yada. It isn't a health food, but when you're starving, you should eat what's, you know, someone sent you. Um, But we didn't. You didn't. He threw it away. He threw it out. And I, I remember just 
there were so many moments where I just was so shocked at his behavior, but I never compiled that shock enough to, to be able to see what a dangerous situation it was. Then got back in the spring, the summer of struggle, learning to, to be broke. Then that fall was the first time that he hit me. When we had had confrontation, every time it was the stonewalling, uh, immediately shutting down. But eventually, in one of these confrontations, he came out of that just shut down state and open hand slapped me across the face. When this happened, I was just, again, so shocked. I so taken back. I mean, I had never had anyone lay their hands on me my whole life. I had no idea what that felt like. And it feels a lot worse than you would think, doesn't it? Yeah, it absolutely does. There's there's really no describing that feeling of violation and uh, yes. unsafety, especially when this was the only person in my life. This, you know, I, I had no contact with friends or family or nothing. It was just him. He had totally isolated me at this point. So it was safe for him to go ahead and start slapping me around. When that happened, I I, I was so scared and I, I left. I got in my car and I drove to my cousin's house a couple of states away. You really took off. I did. I, I was I was very shocked. I, I knew this was not okay, but that didn't last. I stayed there a couple of days and then... You know, he used all of this normal tactics of he was so sorry and this would never happen again. And it's never happened before. Right. Right. Uh, he would tell you. Maybe. Yeah, he would tell me. Yeah. And that it was all his his parents fault that he would ever do that because they hit him as a kid. Just total justification. And, you know, I bought it. Um, so I come back and things seriously just snowball from there. He was speaking down to me perpetually. It was anything I didn't know or if I misspoke, you know, I was just the dumbest person on the planet and I had no worth, nothing to give to the world except for my obligations to him to keep him housed and fed and and all of this, keep up with his lifestyle. Mm -hmm. He would get, he would get, I meant to mention this before, he would get aggressive in ways that weren't hitting before he hit me. So for example, if if we got in, I just eventually stopped wearing skirts because if we got into a fight when I was wearing a dress or a skirt, he would try to touch me. He would push up my skirt and slide his hands up my leg as we're fighting. Or he would, you know, touch me inappropriately as we're fighting in somewhat of a sexual way, but it was more about aggression and assertion of power, say things like, you like that, you whore, or, you know, you, insinuating that I liked the um, violation. So that was something he had done before he actually hit me. He also used to spit in my face when I would say something that he didn't like, he would just, just spit in my face. And that happened regularly. The first time it happened, again, I was so shocked. I was so sure. flabbergasted that someone would behave like that towards another human being. A number of people have 
who've come on, survivors who have come on have talked about that. And it's hard to match that up against being slapped or strangulated or anything, sure. but they put it way up there. I mean, some of them would say it, it seemed worse. It stayed with them longer to be spit in the face yeah. than anything else to be punched or different things like that. It just was such a statement, yeah. such a put down. It was. And I wouldn't say that it impacted me more than the physical violence, but I do think it was a really, for him, beneficial stepping stone to building up to violence. And it's it's the the feeling of just absolute no goodness that sends. You know, you're nothing. You're worth nothing to me. I would just spit on you. That it's just it's disgusting. And it was a really powerful tool in degrading me. I just felt like someone on this planet is willing to look down upon me so much that they'll spit on me. Like it it was powerful in that sense, in that moment. Yeah, I bet it was. Yeah. Another thing he had introduced around this time was the concept of twin flames, which is recently gained some popularity. And essentially the concept is it's a spiritual concept that God or source, whoever created a soul, and then that soul was split into two parts, a male and a female part. Each person has their quote-unquote twin flame that they're supposed to find, and that's their perfect match. It's it's a relatively prevalent concept in the, the spiritual communities that we were involved in. It was a really powerful tool in getting me to accept abuse. Once he got me to accept that he was the other half of my soul and anything he did was just me, was really just my soul doing to myself, that was a really powerful tool in getting me to accept the abuse. That opens up a whole envelope I've never looked in before. That is amazing. I really relate to a lot of stories of cult members and their survival stories because I very much feel like he had used my interest in in God and spirituality and twisted it to serve his, his needs and his desires. I can see that. There's a lot of practices within the spiritual community that can be beneficial, but can also be incredibly dangerous, especially in situations like these where he had gotten me to accept that he was just me and anything he did to me was just me doing it to myself. Anything I felt in reaction to him, I needed to check because I just, it was just me doing it to myself. Like I had all the responsibility basically of abuse. You're causing this to happen. Right. The other part of me is, is just doing it to myself. So what's the big deal? If we follow along that line, which is not easy, what were you therefore supposed to do so that the physical abuse would be non-existent or at least less of it? It's happening, but so therefore, what do you do with that information since you were buying it? The conditions in which the violence would stop was all things that could never happen. It was all about the characteristics of who I was and the past. The past was a huge thing. The fact that I had ever been with anyone else was so disgusting to him, so overwhelmingly disrespectful to him, the other half of my soul. And he had been with other people and that was okay. But the fact that I had ever been with someone else was something that came up 
at least once a month. It was violently came up at least once a month. It was a really, really big deal for him. Um, he talked about that regularly, that uh, eventually once things deteriorated, he talked a lot about how he wanted to kill the guys that I had ever had a relationship with before, that no one else deserved or had the right to be with me or look at me in that way except him. Um, again, and that ties back to the spiritual concepts that we were all tied up in. You were intended for him only. Right. It's, it's, a, very, it's a very dangerous concept, especially in, in my scenario. Violence rapidly increases. Once I get back from taking off after the first slap across the face, it basically immediately increases to like wrestling matches and like wrestling with, he would punch me with his fist and I would, my, my immediate reaction was anger. I was mad. I wanted to defend myself. You know, like I said, I'm tall. I'm used to being strong and being able to physically maneuver how I want. I wasn't strong enough. He could totally overpower me at this point. But at first I fought back, you know, I would hit him back and I would wrestle with him throughout the apartment and whatever he did to me, I would do back to him. And this just, (laughs) the mindset of someone doing that is so hard to describe because I was so torn. It went, part of me felt so dejected and that I deserved this, but another part of me felt anger and self-protection. And so I was very divided in, in my reaction. The fighting back did not benefit me. It just escalated the situation. Yeah, I can imagine. He would just have to top, top me, top me, top me. Like there was no world in which I was going to do something to him that made him stop. I I wasn't willing to do what it would have took. So you just keep climbing the ladder. Yeah, exactly. Yes, the, the violence is increasing. At this point, I would say probably once it gets to this point where I'm fighting back and I am eventually am learning to stop fighting back and just kind of take it. I just kind of play dead and it would seemingly go away a little bit faster that way for a while. Um, At this point, I started working at a vegetarian restaurant. I don't know, a year before I was just doing delivery. So it was just me and my car alone, no coworkers, nobody I was talking to on a regular basis except him. And then I start at this restaurant and I am having regular daily interactions with people. And that was a big game changer. You know, I started to have this life outside of him and I loved it. I loved the people I was working with. I was great at my job. It's amazing how I would go from getting beat up, run and cover up my bruises, put on a long sleeve shirt, go to work and be this happy go lucky talking to people, having these relationships, like I could just flip it. And then I would go from dejected, in pain person to outgoing and customer service person. It, I think that that is both a dangerous and a beneficial characteristic that I've heard many people on this podcast speak about. It's beneficial. And, you know, if you're at work and you have to work, but there's something going on in your personal life, that's good. In my scenario, it was masking the issue. I was not letting on to anyone that there was any problem in my relationship. But I started to form relationships with other people. 
which in retrospect was the very beginning of me starting to come out of the fog, trying to wash off some of the brainwashing. So, of course, I still wasn't speaking with my family. I was working so much that I didn't have any time for anything. I didn't have hobbies. I, I didn't do anything but work, clean the house, cook the food. And that's the thing. I was doing all of this. Every responsibility you could come up with within a home, it was on me. He's doing a spiritual thing and riding the couch. Is that what yeah, he's doing? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. He would have nothing to do with anything that was outside of spirituality. So if I wanted to watch a TV show or wanted to buy clothes or anything that wasn't spiritually facing, wasn't meditating, wasn't yoga, wasn't somehow spiritually beneficial was not acceptable. So for years, I didn't watch TV. I did nothing for myself except for work and meditate and do yoga. It, it was very, very challenging, but I, I feel like I was in such a fight or flight state all the time that I didn't really have energy for anything extracurricular. I was just trying to survive, you know. So how do you start to turn the corner with this guy? First, we moved to a smaller house outside of town. All of this is happening in an apartment. But we moved to the small house outside of town where there's no neighbors. So here, the violence gets increasingly worse because there's no one to hear. It would be random. He would randomly run out of the bedroom where he was meditating while I was cooking dinner or whatever and just attack me. That, I think, was the hardest thing to deal with since was that it was not consistent and there was not like a direct thing of I could see it building up. It could be just out of nowhere. He would just attack me. And he, on multiple occasions, liked to grab the back of my head, get my hair in his hand, and then slam my head onto the floor or the counter or the corners of things. And there was multiple times where I went unconscious and I woke up the next day with terrible headaches. I honestly think that, I don't know if it's the PTSD from the situation or the physical head trauma, but that has definitely impacted me in how I communicate in my short-term memory. I just feel different than I was before this relationship. And I, I think that it has something to do with the head traumas of that. This concludes part two with Sabrina. Be looking for part three on the When Dating Hurts podcast. Thank you for listening to the When Dating Hurts podcast. We have been steadily moving up in podcast review rankings based on downloads in the relationships category. That means more and more listeners are getting the kind of advice that can improve lives for victims, survivors, and their families. If you feel we need to hear your story, do not hesitate to email me at billmitchell at whendatinghurts.com. That's Bill Mitchell at whendatinghurts.com.